How you doing? It's good to see you. It's good to see you. And uh, like I say, a number of faces I don't recognise. Really good to have you with us. And uh, just to say a little bit about this later, we don't see this as kind of just formal and uh, ritual. You know, it's not just something we have to do every week because in some way that might please a God who may or may not be out there, may or may not like us and may or may not let us into heaven. That's not why we come. Why we come here, what, where we set the bar here is, we believe God is alive, and he is for us, he loves us, and we can encounter him. So we really pray, if you're visiting us, that you know something of that as you're among us. I think we did in the worship. Just to say, when I got up and said about the moving mountains, somebody came up afterwards and just said they at the same time got a picture of kind of doors blocking and the sense was that Jesus has given you the key, you just need to use it. And it may be that door is opening into greater liberty, it may be it's unlocking something that you know is there to unlock, but you have the key and maybe responsibility in some measure to unlock. So if that speaks to you, afterwards we have a prayer team, we'd love to pray for you afterwards. Okay, are we ready with the video, James? Let's just watch this, shall we? It is as bad as the experts feared. Hurricane Ian has made landfall in Florida, and the experts say if you had plans to leave and haven't, stay where you are. The storm has intensified to a near Category 5 status, wreaking havoc on everything in its path. It's hell on earth as Hurricane Ian slams into Florida. 155 miles per hour winds, 18-foot waves, epic destruction. Take a look at the cars now. They're all bunched into each other over there. The wind continues to ramp up. But we're going to get smashed here. There are down trees literally everywhere all over this area. This is what Ian looks like from space, a swirling monster. Those flashes, lightning. I can't hear anything and I can't see anything. Here's where the water comes up to three feet. Check out the Weather Channel's gripping 3D simulation of what a nine-foot storm surge looks like. Nine feet that can completely submerge some buildings, homes, businesses. This, in many cases, is not survival. Look at the wind howling through here. Their reporters were in the thick of it, wearing baseball helmets for protection against projectiles. I just got knocked on my butt. You can hardly see anything out here. Jim Cantori had some close calls. First, he almost got struck by lightning. Then he got hit with a tree branch. There are cars floating. Tony and Emily Massey are riding out the storm in their high-rise in Naples. They lost power as the city flooded. This is where the pool was. The pool is underwater. The pool's gone. Much of Florida is hunkered down today. The state's famous amusement parks, Disney, Universal, Legoland, and SeaWorld all closed as the state gets absolutely hammered. What was he doing out there? I mean, what, what, what are you doing? Get in. Don't, don't step outside. I mean, your job's not worth that, okay? Don't be a plonker. However, does life feel a bit like that at the moment for you? Epic destruction. It's like all hell has broken loose. You may want life to be like Disneyland, 
blue skies, the happiest place on earth. And for some reason, it's not like that. I want to speak this morning about being in the eye of the storm. The eye of the storm is a phrase that speaks of the center of the chaos. At the eye of the storm, the winds are tightest and fiercest. So it's not a good place to be. However, interestingly, at the very eye of the storm, at the very epicenter, it can look like this. So this is, not like that. (laughs) Children's work. It's not good. Was that comedic value, James? What are you doing? What are you doing now? Stop it. This is actually at the eye of Hurricane Ian. Because what happens there is actually at the very eye of the storm, it can be clear blue sky and a calm. Like I say, is that your life at the moment? It feels like everything is swirling around, it's raging. Maybe you're feeling some of the pressure, we're going to come back to this, that Mark was speaking about, that as Christians in this day and age, we may be facing increasingly. And the question I have for us this morning, and the encouragement is to believe that at the eye of the storm, you can find a place of peace and calm and security. We're going through the book of Hebrews, we've called it the real deal, and uh, the Hebrews... This Jewish group of Christians or uh, Christians with a Jewish background were at the eye of a storm. They were in the middle of persecution. We're going to see this later. They they were right in the epicenter. It may be that these believers with a Jewish background were in Rome. And in the middle of the first century under Nero, there had been persecution. And we see throughout the New Testament letter, there's persecution, don't we? It may be that they were, in fact they were, they were facing pressure from their Jewish culture and tempted to give up, tempted to go back into Judaism of renouncing their Christian faith. So what is the writer's purpose in the book of Hebrews? Well, we see it right at the end of the book, Hebrews 13, 22. And with a preacher's uh, spin, (laughs) to be honest, he says at the end of 13 chapters... Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. That's what the whole letter has been about, my word of exhortation. For in fact, I've written to you quite briefly, 13 chapters later. So I've just got a brief word for us this morning. This, This will fly by. What was the word of exhortation in the midst of the eye of the storm? To persevere in faith. Ha! get hold of that some of us need to get hold of that this morning that'll do you good to get hold of that to persevere in faith I'm going to come back to faith but faith isn't seeing things it's being certain of what you don't see there's promises to you that you can be certain of but you don't see them yet so persevere in faith endure Well, what was the calm at the eye of the storm for the Hebrews? How did they access this 
calm, this place of security? It's an, incre- it's an important question. I feel this as a pastor. There is, there is something when people are in the eye of the storm, and I know there are people here in that place. When you're in the middle of the vortex right now, what is it that will keep you going? It's an important question. This is what Andrew Murray, he's written a great commentary. It feeds your soul as I've been preparing this week. This is what he said. He says, the great complaint of all who have the care of souls is the lack of wholeheartedness, of perseverance and progress in the Christian life. Many come to a standstill in the midst of trials and do not advance beyond the rudiments of Christian life and practice. And many more, is that us? Without pointing the finger at any of us, let's own our faith in this country can be too immature. There are men and women throughout the world, Mark prayed about them earlier, we don't hold a candle to them. Their faith is strong. They'll go through anything. They know. They're in the middle of real trial. Somebody said this week, we had a bit of a flood last week. Bit of a flood. Trial. We had to endure. People couldn't come to church and all sorts. They had to watch online. Some liked it. That's nothing, is it, to what some believers, some of our brothers and sisters in the world are going through. And many more do not even remain stationary, but turn back to a world, to a life of worldliness, a formality of indifference. And the question is continually asked, what is the want in our religion that in so many cases it gives no power to stand, to advance, to press on unto perfection? Don't you want a faith like that? Don't you want a faith that when trial hits, when the storm hits, when Hurricane Ian hits... We're able not only to stand, but maybe to advance. In the trial, we may have to stand, but when we get through it, we realize we have advanced. So that's what we're holding out this morning. How do we get to that place? Well, let's have a look at Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. The writer says, therefore, brothers and sisters, and I'll come back to that, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Let us draw near to God. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. What was the calm at the eye of the storm? It's the highest privilege. It's the highest privilege we have thanks James you just move it forward that we have as believers what is it look at verse 22 it says this let us draw near to God are you in the midst of the storm now in the midst of that storm which direction are you heading Is it causing you to lay hold of God? Actually, it's how we're to live our life anyway, whether in a storm or not. 
That's to be our trajectory, to draw near to God. It's the central message of Hebrews. At the end of nine chapters, where the writers explain the sacrificial system, Jesus the high priest, this is what he comes to. Therefore, in the light of all of that teaching, this is, where, this is why I'm writing, let's draw near to God. This is what Andrew Murray says. He says, enter into the holiest. This is, in one short word, the fruit of Christ's work. The chief lesson of the epistle, the letter. The one great need of our Christian life. The complete and perfect salvation God in Christ gives us to enjoy. Oh, the glory of the message. For 15 centuries, Israel had a sanctuary, a temple, with a holiest of all, the holy of holies, into which, on pain of death, no one might enter. And now, how changed is all because of Christ. As then the warning sounded, enter not. That was the message to Israel. Don't, come, don't just waltz into my presence on pain of death. So now the call goes out to us, enter in. That's what he's got for us. That's the appeal. That's the, that's the reason the letter was written. That we can have access to God. And let me tell you, friend, that will get you through anything. You're going through stuff. Some of us have got a testimony of having gone through stuff. We know at that place we met with God, at that place we bottomed out on him and found him. We can go through anything. We can go through anything. Do I hear an amen in the house of God? That's a message we need to tell people. Because there are people out there going through anxiety and pain and worry and a cost of living crisis and can't pay their mortgages and their marriages are breaking up. And we can tell them, if you can come to God, if you can press into God, you can go through anything. You'll get through anything. I believe that with my whole heart. There's stuff I can't tell you that we've been through. And he got us through it and it was hell on earth. Hell, hell, I think, almost literally let rip on us. Ah. Ha. We got through it. I'm still standing in the words of Elton John. No matter what came at us. No, 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 no. You're not going to take me down. Not my strength. The enemy's not going to take me down. Because I'm going I'm to look to stand on God. I'm going to look to enter into his presence. I'm going to look to lay hold of him. I'm going to ask him for his spirit to strengthen me and lead me and guide me out. Sometimes the only, what is it? The only way through. Come on, Steve. I learned this from you. I think the only way through is, uh, the only way out is through something like that. It was a good word first time around when I heard it. <laughs> Andrew Murray elsewhere says, and I love this. This is in the introduction to his commentary. Our one need is to know Jesus better. I think that's true. Our one need in all of life is to know Jesus better. It's to know Jesus. Better. It's not to become part of a good church. It's not to develop your skills. 
you know, work out your Myers-Briggs or your personality type and how can I make the most of myself? It's to know Jesus better. I've been reading in John and uh, previously, kind of John, you know, I like, I like Luke. I like the Gospel of Luke. It's like Holy Spirit and then act, Book of Acts and it's active and he's doing stuff and the church is doing stuff. And I've come to appreciate John though because reading particularly John 14 to 17, the disciples, I think, are in the calm in the eye of the storm. John 14 to 17 is Jesus' discourse before he goes to the cross in the upper room. And they see there Jesus' heart, God's heart. God says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going away, but don't let your hearts be troubled. He says to them, if you'll open the door, my father and I will come and set up home with you. He says, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. Don't worry. I know, I know you feel like you're in this world and you've got to perform and you've got to impress, but I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to send the counsellor, the one who comes alongside. So the disciples, I think, are in the calm, the peace of the eye of the storm there. I think some of us, I felt when I was reading through this morning, some of us, you're in that trial now. It is your opportunity. It is an opportunity for you to know God better. In the midst of whatever storm you're going through, God is holding out an opportunity to you to know him better. Okay, I need to crack on. So who do we come to? Hebrews 1 tells us he's the one who is sovereign. Just You'll know that passage. I'm not going to read it. If you flip there, James, that'd be great. This one who created the world. We come to him. And yet, moving on to Hebrews 4. Thanks, James. He's the one who is so tender. The writer has said, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then, and again the answer is, let us then approach God's throne of grace, draw near to God with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, that Jesus went through what we've been through. Maybe not exactly the same, but he knows our weakness. He knows our tenderness, and he's sensitive to us. He empathizes with us. We come to him. How do we know we can come? Well, verse 22, in the full assurance of faith. In the full assurance of faith. Faith in what? Well, in the gospel. In what the writer has spent nine chapters telling us. Have faith in that. That's how we can know we can enter in. Again, to reiterate, we don't enter into God's presence. We don't draw near to God. Maybe this is news to you. I want to briefly explain the gospel. We don't enter in based on our merits. I'm a good person. I've done this. I've done that. You know, why, why are Christians any different? And you may know Christians who actually aren't particularly nice people. Some of us may have met a few of them every now and again. Yeah, but it's not on that basis. We enter in because we're forgiven. Why are we forgiven? Because we've placed our faith, not in ourselves, but in what Christ did on the cross. And the writer has taken time to explain Jesus was both the high priest, but he was also the sacrifice. He was also the one that paid the cost. There's a new covenant now in his blood. And we trust his blood shed on the cross. 
And if we trust what he's done on the cross for us, and we say, God, I'm sorry for the wrong I've done. I'm very broken. Would you come and heal me? He'll come by his spirit and he'll begin to go to work. He'll forgive you. He'll bring you into relationship with him. And you can enter in in confidence. We have faith in what he's done. There's a couple of things, interestingly. I'm not going to pick up on it too much. But there are a couple of things the writer here tells us will help keep us in the calm, the peace at the centre of the storm. And it's this, to ensure we're part of a Christian community. All too often, I see folks in trial, and I understand it, in trial, they kind of, I think some of it is, they try and sort it themselves and they withdraw from this. I don't just mean Sundays, I mean Christian community. Look what the writer says though, just a couple of things here. He says, let us spur one another on toward love and good deed. We need one another to keep us on track, don't we? We need one another to spur us on. The word means kind of irritate us, provoke us to good deeds. We need to be doing that to encourage one another, to be saying, look, you can do this, you can get through. Don't treat your wife like that. Are you sure you're doing the right thing with your sons there? Yeah, you shouldn't slack off at work. Come on, you're better than that. Let's provoke one another to good deeds. Let's keep one another accountable, lovingly. We need that. I need that. And then he goes on to say this. Let's not give up meeting together. The word is synagoguing, really. And the synagogue means a gathering. The church is not an institutional thing. We've had to become an organisation. We have trustees and all sorts that look after us so that we do things well. But fundamentally, we're a community. We don't go to church. Do we? we say this stuff, but actually we then live like, what are the church going to do about this? Well, what are you going to do about it? You are the church. So we need to forge loving, committed community. It will keep us on track. Okay. So that's the highest privilege. In the light of that, there's a couple of choices we can make in response to the gospel. Look at Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. The writer says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's an interesting line, this. Look at this. He's just been saying about drawing near to God. And yet he then says, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What's that saying? Well, the issue is not about coming to God. It's about how you come to God. What is he talking about here? He's talking about a willful rejection of Christ. 
It's not talking about struggling with sin. We all do that. It's talking about a willful rejection of Christ. These are people who have received knowledge of the truth. If you flip that forward, James. Receive knowledge of the truth on this horrible path, but have trampled the Son, have profaned the blood. They've counted the blood of Jesus as nothing. If you flip the next one, I think. And have insulted the Spirit. And the consequence of that is fearful. There's an expectation of judgment. There's a raging fire. God says, I'll avenge. This is talking here about the greatest sin I think we can commit. And it's this, rejecting Christ. Rejecting Christ. And the consequence is that it's dreadful to fall into the hands then of the living God. Can I be honest? I feel a little bit uncomfortable sharing this now. Because we don't tend to think, do we, of God like this in these terms. You know, God is loving, absolutely. He's a father. He's a good, good father, absolutely. But he is holy and he is pure. And elsewhere, it's said in, it's said in, um, in Hebrews that he's a consuming fire. But if we haven't profaned the blood, if we haven't counted the blood as nothing, if we're covered by the blood, we're safe. We need to know then that we're covered by the blood. Well, who is this talking about? Who's it referring to here? Well, there's a a few possibilities. It could be that it's people who are not true Christians. People perhaps, Hebrews 6 presents a similar dilemma. It talks about people who've been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift, but are going to face judgment. So is it folks who are not true Christians? Or it could be, and this is getting theological now, is it true believers that have heard this, have had Christ, have received the knowledge of the truth, but have now turned away and have lost their salvation? Can you lose your salvation? Or is it Christians who have fallen away and are now not in a place to hear God? What? Artie Kendall calls being stone deaf to the Spirit. They've so hardened themselves. They were believers. They truly placed their faith in Christ. But they have now so hardened their hearts, they just can't hear God. And they will be saved, in the words of 1 Corinthians 3.15, as though by fire. Who do you think it's talking about? Christians that have lost their salvation. Christians who have hardened their hearts but will be saved but as though by fire, or people who weren't Christians in the first place. I have a view. But I don't think this is about theological fineries of whether you can lose your salvation or not. Here's the point. Whether we're a Christian or not a Christian, why would we live in this place? Why would we live at risk of facing this outcome? Why would you live in that place where you trample the sun, where you deny him, where you harden your heart to God? Where you've heard the gospel, I've spoken it 
this morning and you reject it. Why would you do that if that is what might happen to you? The fire, the judgment. Well, what's the answer to that? Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, what's the answer? Well, it's to turn back to God. In the Bible, the word for that is repentance. It sounds like a very religious word. It just means to turn back to God. And I say to us this morning, if in any measure you feel, whether you're a believer or not a believer, you'd call yourself a Christian, you wouldn't. If in any measure you feel some element of conviction, am I really owning God? Am I really drawing near to him? Or have I, am I rejecting him? Am I hardening my heart? I'm not asking you, do you sin? And are there struggles in your life with certain sins? I'm not asking that. We can pray for you and make sure you you understand you're forgiven because Christ died for you on the cross. I'm talking about this. Hardening your heart to God. Rejecting him outright. Rejecting his people. Giving up. Meeting together. I can't be bothered with a church anymore. I'm, I'm gone. The solution is to come back to him. I would love, if this is speaking, it may be one person let me just tell you, if you're a visitor, we don't normally preach like this. It's an unusual message. But it's in Scripture. Repentance. Come back to God. It's a horrible path if we're on that one. Finally, Hebrews 10, 32 to 39. Talks about a heavenly perspective. The writer says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you had endured a great conflict full of suffering. This is what they've been through. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God you will receive what he has promised for in just a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay and my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed but to those who have faith and are saved So there's a heavenly perspective here. The writer maps out what these people have been through. It talks about them having been in combat, in conflict. And the word is, um, it's the word from which we get the word athlete. It means combat. It's like they've just been slugging it out. Is that you again? Does it just feel at the moment like you're slugging it out with the enemy, with yourself? We're trying to muscle through. These, These people faced were publicly exposed to insult. Christians now in this country, increasingly, aren't they, being publicly exposed to insult. They had their property, I don't know whether this has happened yet, their property confiscated. I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility. This church we lease from the education authority, I think. I could see that in days to come, educational authorities might have a problem with us, a Christian community, believing scripture with us leasing this building. We don't own this building. But I could see those sorts of difficulties coming. Well, what's the response? Look at verse 38. We're to live by faith. My righteous one will live by faith. Our response in this situation is 
faith. The writer here sets up, doesn't he? Hebrews 11, you know that chapter? Remember Moses, who by faith. Abraham, who by faith. David, who by faith. Through faith, the writer says in verse 37, you'll receive what's promised, and he says, in a little while. Are you going through a trial right now, and it's been a long one? It's almost a mockery that the writer says, in a little while. I mean, 2,000 years we've been waiting for that reward, but it's felt to you like a a long time. How long, O oh Lord? Well, the promise to you is, if you'll hold on by faith, there is reward coming. There is promotion. I don't mean in a job. I mean in terms of authority. Stepping into something. God has been testing you. You've been in the refiner's fire. If you will walk through, keep going by faith. He says, I'm coming soon. And my reward is with me. My reward. Anyone want a reward? Anyone want a reward? Keep going then. Keep going. Keep being faithful. Don't veer away. Don't, don't go off the path. Don't make the wrong choice. Keep being faithful. Going to finish. I wonder whether in days to come, we might not have a growing affinity with these Hebrew Christians. I wonder whether we might sense a growing affinity here in the UK with these Christians. What do I mean? That we might find ourselves a bit more in the eye of the storm as believers. Mark was saying, you know, where are we going to draw the line? You see, these Hebrews had the authorities against them. They had social attitudes against them. They even had formal religion against them. And there was such a pressure then to conform. Well, the writer says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To conform, to give up on their faith. Brothers, sisters, as we go through situations individually and in days to come as a church, let's draw near to God. Let's see what his perspective is. See what he has to say about the situation. Let's find our security in him in the eye of the storm. Let's forge communities that are committed to him and to one another. Let's not let this be a gathering of Atoms that kind of bounce off one another, but we never know each other. We don't get involved in each other's lives. We don't know what's going on. I'm not saying we're going to know everyone, but let's know someone. <laughs> that's why we have life groups here. So that we can, that's why we call them life groups, so that we can do life together. So that we, when we're going through stuff, you know there's people around you. They may not, hey, let me be honest, they may not be your choice of people. There are people in this church, in life groups, and the people in their life group would not be their choice. But they've come to know each other and love each other and trust one another. And it's grace that covers our differences. We might choose a certain group. I'm looking at my life group leaders. Now, I happen to like my life group leaders, okay? But 
God will give us grace so that through thick and thin we can be knit together. Let's forge communities like that so that together we're able to persevere in our faith. I love this rallying cry at the end of chapter 10. It doesn't please God, those who shrink back. But this is what the writer says. And it's like, come on, let, let's let this be us. Ah, but we don't belong to those who shrink back. I'm not going to belong to those who shrink back. I'm not saying that, promising it. I'm saying that that's who I want to be. I don't want to be those who shrink back. Do you? Well, let's press into him. Let's draw near to God so that in the eye of the storm, come on, we will not be those that shrink back, give up, walk away, throw our toys out of the pram, whatever it is. But we press in, we find God and we find one another. Amen. Amen.